All right, this is an oral history interview with Ambassador Robert Ellsworth for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in the offices of the Nixon Center in Washington, D.C. Today is Wednesday, August 8, 2007, and I'm Brian Williams. Let's start with a little bit of your family background and coming to Kansas. My grandfather came to Kansas after the Civil War from Ohio, uh, and with his brothers then, became a cowboy. He and his brothers were a team of cowboys operating in western Kansas. They were real cowboys. They lived in dugouts, and they rode their horses and had their chuck wagon. And But that's a hard life. And after two, three years, they came back to eastern Kansas and became corn farmers on small scale. And my grandfather was also a, a, a cabinet maker. Uh, and so then my dad who did not enjoy farming, <laughs> became a journalist for a short period of time after he graduated from the university. He was in World War I, then he came back and uh, was a student at the university, and when he graduated, he became a journalist. And then, after a couple of years of that, became the executive secretary of the University of Kansas Alumni Association, where he remained for over 40 years and became a fixture in that community. Now, where did you, uh, you started, you were born in, in, in Lawrence. I, I was born in Lawrence and, and, and went to school there and went to the university there and uh, then joined the Navy and was sent to sea uh, at the tail end of World War II. And uh, when I came back, went to the University of Michigan Law School and then uh, practiced law in private practice. And uh, presently I got into politics. <laughs> Uh, World War II, did you see action? I did see action. I was on a mine, I was the engineer officer on a minesweeper, sweeping mines in the uh, western Pacific. Any close brushes with uh, life and death? Uh, Everything is a close brush with life and death when you're sweeping mines, but I was lucky and didn't have any, any uh, damage or, or injury. So when you came back, you stay, You went in reserve, or...? I stayed in the reserve for quite a long time, and actually then, in the Korean conflict, I went back in as a, as a, a naval officer and served for three years, again on minesweepers, and also I had a shore job at the tail end of my minesweeper duty in, in the Korean conflict, but I was not in Korea. I was sent with the Sixth Fleet to the Mediterranean. Hmm. Where there's mine... <laughs> I mean, there was not much mining going on in the Mediterranean at that point, was there? Well, we, there was not, but we didn't know that, and we had to be prepared. That was before uh, Suez, wasn't it? Just by it was that. before Suez, that's right. Suez wasn't until 56, and, but, uh, but the Cold War, uh, the Korean conflict was really the start of the Cold War, which was a worldwide competition rivalry with the Soviets in Seoul. So you brought us up to uh, your introduction to politics a moment ago. So how did that happen? Well, I became the county chairman of Douglas County, Kansas, Republican Central Committee. And presently, I ran for Congress and was elected in 1960, the same year that Dole was elected from a district, different district, of course. Um, I think, were you the only two freshmen no. from Kansas? That no, no, there was, no, more, there was quite there? a group. There were three others who were freshman Republican congressmen from Kansas that year. It was a big year. Yeah, how do you account for that? I don't know. I never thought to account for it. Uh, the luck of the draw and 
seats were open and and good candidates uh, on the Republican side, they all won. And how did Nixon do uh, in Kansas? Nixon carried Kansas big. And Nixon actually came in to my district and campaigned for himself, of course, but also for me and for other Republican candidates who were running. It was a a huge event in Kansas City, Kansas, in the armory. And uh, Nixon carried the state heavily and carried my district very heavily. And... Tell me about your first encounters with Robert Dole. Well, Dole and I had encountered each other before the election of 1960 because he was an active Republican. He was a county, a county uh, prosecutor. And I was a county chairman, and we would meet at uh, statewide conventions. And he was a war hero. Everybody knew Bob Dole. <laughs> and uh, so when we, when we were elected the same year to House seats, then we had began to have a lot of interaction. Did you travel to Washington together? Or? We did. We traveled to Washington together. Uh, before we took our seats, there was a pre-seating seminar given by the Republican organization in Washington for incoming freshmen. And uh, so we went there together, along with the other, with our colleagues from Kansas, and attended two, three days of warm-up for Orientation, you might say. How did that feel for you? Very exciting. Very exciting. Exciting for all of us. And describe uh, Bob Dole at this point in his life. Well, Dole was, as I say, a famous war hero and and had been a famous athlete in the University of Kansas before he went off to war and was wounded. And so Dole was well-known to everybody and very popular with everybody. He was... uh, had the confidence of an athlete, the confidence of a guy who got awfully good grades in school, and very popular with the girls, and was just a popular guy, well-liked, and a good politician. <laughs> I don't, uh, I'm not aware of anyone having talked in any detail about Bob Dole, the athlete. Could you just fill us in a little bit on that? Well, he was, uh, he was a very muscular and energetic young man and was recruited he was, he was working on a gas pipeline in the western part of the state. And one of his co-workers was a man named Mitt, or Milton Allen, the son of the famous basketball coach Fogg Allen. And Mitt Allen went back and told his father that he should get this very athletic, very strong, built-like-a-horse guy, Bob Dolan, get him to recruited to be on the, in the Kansas University basketball team, which... Paul Gallon did. And then Dole also went out for football and was a, a star player on the football team and also went out for track where he was a star quarter miler. I think he still has the record for the quarter mile back in Russell High in Kansas. But in any case, and his co- track coach told him, you can be a gold medalist in the Olympics. If, and of course then that was interrupted with the war. And Bob Dole's athletic career was over because of his wounds, but uh, he was a a well-known athlete in those days, a young man. Very popular and very (laughs) very athletic. And what uh, committee assignments did you and Bob... uh, Well, I think Bob had agriculture. And uh, I had two or three committee assignments, post office and civil service, merchant marine and fisheries, and I ultimately ended up on the Joint Economic Committee. Um, 
I, at some point, uh, there was a battle in the House over the leadership when Jerry Ford... Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Well, uh, this was after the 1964 election when Goldwater was running for president and the Republican Party was decimated all over the country. We lost too many seats in the Senate. We lost a lot of seats in the House. We lost governorships. We lost seats in state legislatures. We lost county attorneys all over the country and governors. And so three or four of us in the House decided that part of the problem was the then minority leader, Charlie Halleck, a guy from Indiana. And we decided he had to be replaced. And there were enough young people, young entrants into the House on the Republican side by then that we had a majority of young people. So we mounted a campaign with Ford. And uh, there was myself and uh, Congressman Goodell from New York State, uh, Congressman uh, Bob, I can't remember his name offhand, from Michigan, and a congressman named Albert Quee from Minnesota, plus in the background Melvin Laird of Wisconsin. And we put together a campaign and we had Ford's permission to wage the campaign. He did not take a leadership. Anyway, we succeeded in replacing Halleck with Ford. In uh, That was when the, the new Congress convened in 1965. And was there a long list of potential candidates, or were you no. pretty much set on Ford? set on Ford. And that was because? Well, Ford was reliable. He was solid. He was decent, honest. He knew the ins and outs. He was a superb member of the House, and he was a natural. Was Dole party to this? I'm sure he was, but he was not among the active four or five of us who were, yeah. So for the first two and a half years, you were members of a Republican minority uh, in the House uh, with Jack Kennedy as, as president. How did that go? <laughs> well, it was all highly political, but Jack Kennedy was very popular, including among Republicans. <laughs> and we... we uh, had our differences with the president, but uh, he was very charming, well-known, very, we, we, everybody liked him. Not everybody, probably, but a lot of, oh, we did, most of us did. And I, it went okay, but Kennedy lost his grip on the Democrats in the Congress and was not able to get legislation through very well. And, uh, well, of course, as you remember, uh, it wasn't after his assassination. President Johnson then used the memory of President Kennedy and the fact that he'd been assassinated as an emotional plea to the Congress to enact big legislation, which we did. How would you characterize the Kennedy program uh, as compared with the Great Society? Well, the Kennedy program was a fine program, very ambitious, very idealistic, but he couldn't get it through politically. <laughs> Was it as radical, would you say, as, as Johnson's turned out to be? Well, I don't know. Maybe. Now, certainly, certainly did not get anywhere, though. Um, Bob Dole. Uh, the, big, the big issue yeah. with Kennedy, not so much on legislation, and later with Johnson, was civil rights for blacks. And uh, I remember that I had a constituent call me up in, it must have been in 61, maybe 62, 
said that his daughter had gone down on spring break with a group of university students, other university students, to Louisiana to agitate for reg uh, registering blacks to vote in Louisiana. <laughs> and that they'd all been arrested by the sheriff in such and such a county. And what would I, could I do to help? I said, I don't know, but I'll call the attorney general, which I did, called Bobby Kennedy. And he said, we've told all those kids not to do that, and, but that if they did, they were on their own because the Justice Department can't do anything about it. That's not our policy. That's local law enforcement and local laws. But tell your constituent to get in his car and drive himself down there to Louisiana and knock on the sheriff's door and present himself and tell him who he is and that he's come to take his daughter back and the other kids that want to go. It would, so I called my constituent and that's what he did. Well, that changed at the Nash federal level when Martin Luther King, with his great strategic sense, put at risk the children and adults too in Birmingham and got provoked Bull Connor the police chief of Birmingham, to use police dogs and fire hoses on these black kids. And that put so much pressure on the Kennedys that they changed federal policy and then sent the FBI and the Justice Department down throughout the South to, to force compliance with laws, but they really didn't have civil rights laws until Johnson came and, and in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination and got to Congress to pass civil rights laws and voting rights laws with teeth in them. How, what was the Republican Party attitude towards these early days of the civil rights movement? Oh, pretty negative, although uh, in the Senate and in the House, the leaders of the Republican Party under Johnson uh, cooperated Without their help, there wouldn't have been any. But the Democrats from the South were dead set against any change. But the Republicans from the North helped to pass those laws, no doubt about it. And Dole, take me, let's get back to Dole for a minute. When Dole was a college kid and a track star at the University of Kansas, there was a black guy whose name I can't remember who was a superb athlete and a great track star, could run the quarter mile faster than Dole. And that was fine, except when they would go on uh, on athletic trips and, and track meets to other schools. The other schools wouldn't let this guy participate. So Dole agitated and got a bunch of, of athletes at the University of Kansas to sign petitions and, and took them around and tried to agitate to get the guy admitted. Never did. But Dole's attitude on that for a long time had been that uh, right is right and fair is fair and and if you're a person, you do what you can, and you're entitled to do it. And he, as I recall, did vote for the Early Voting Rights Act. I'm sure and, he did. And, uh, and took some fire for that from, from yeah. some people. Were you having to go back to your district and, and explain yourself? Or? Of course, everybody did. Everybody did. And was that a hard sell? No, not in my district. Um, some of the other things that came up uh, during your time in, in the House uh, included, of course, Medicare and Medicaid yeah. and um, food stamps and a whole bunch of things, part of the Great Society. Now, Dole was well known for voting against almost all of those. Yeah. 
and in fact, uh, what is it someone said, uh, Dole's seems to be to the right of Genghis Khan because <laughs> of his... <laughs> uh, was that, were you following uh, Dole's, uh, were you, was your voting about the same during that period? No, it wasn't. I voted for about 60%. At one time I calculated 60% of the great society. Now, Dole voted for food stamps, you may remember, although I think that was later when he was in the Senate. But uh, no, no, I, I voted for 60% of the Great Society, and I don't think Dole voted for any of it. Did you ever have a discussion at the time about this? And no, say, no, we had to vote our districts. And, and you voted your conscience. That brings up, I guess, a, an interesting question. Compare your district with Dole's. Oh, my district. <laughs> my district was a suburban, very highly educated, affluent, sophisticated district, partly partly a district of largely populated and dominated by blacks, middle-class blacks who ran insurance companies and, and were lawyers and things, <laughs> so forth. And then, of course, the university. Dole's district was entirely rural in the western part of the state. Very different districts. Now, in 66, you decided uh, to run for the Senate. Right. Give me a little background on that decision and its outcome and so forth. Well, uh, I thought I could be a good senator for the state and could be a, a, a hardworking addition to the Senate. And I was tired of running every two years for a House seat. And uh, so there were practical considerations as well as ambition. I was ambitious to be a bigger player. So I ran. And who did you run against? Ran against Jim Pearson, who had been appointed when the previous sole senator had died. So this was my only chance, you might say, because Pearson was from my part of the state. The state traditionally had had one senator from the east and one senator from the west, and, and both Pearson and I were from the east, so this was my chance, I thought. So he was running for the first time. For he was running term. for the first time. Did, uh, how did, how, what was the outcome like? He, well, he won. <laughs> well, I mean, were you badly defeated? No, I was, it, was, it was, I think, something like eight or 9,000 votes statewide, which was a pretty close race. So how did that make you feel? Well, <laughs> it would have been, I would have felt better if I'd won. <laughs> but what do you mean, how did it make me feel? You always, when you get beat, you don't like it. And I didn't like it. Did Bob Dole take a position on, on the race? Did he support uh, one or the other of you or, or not? Let me put it this way. I don't, I don't think he ever said anything in public. But to me, personally, he was very encouraging. I would call him up. I would see him in, in Washington. I would call him up from when I was out on the road campaigning, tell him what was going on, ask him what he thought. And he was always very encouraging to me. Never said anything against uh, my opponent, and he never said anything in public to endorse me, but he was very encouraging to me. He, uh, I read somewhere, described you as really his best friend during the time he was in the House. Describe that friendship a little bit. Well, we were very good friends. We became good friends. We, we hadn't really known each other that well, though we'd known each other slightly, as I said before. And, uh, I don't know what to say. I mean, we we were both Republicans in a in a 
minorities role and we kind of palled around a little bit. We didn't work too closely on legislation or policy simply because our districts were so different. But we certainly always understood each other very well, liked each other personally. Dole's a very likable guy. And when you say palled around, what, what form did palling around take? Palling around took the form of, of uh, gossip and chit-chat in the Republican cloakroom, hour on hour, back there, eating ice cream cones and, and, and drinking coffee and swapping gossip and chit-chat. <laughs> and... Uh, I mean, this, this cloakroom is such a, a feature of, I guess, your life as a, as it a is. of the house. It is. Uh, I would think that you would be fearful that you were going to be overheard if you were doing much gossiping uh, in, in that room. Well, you, you, you controlled yourself and you limited your gossip to, to harmless gossip or gossip that was anti-everybody's enemies. <laughs> or you used code language so that you, you were sure you understood each other, but nobody else would understand who you were talking about or what you were saying. Did you and Bob Dole create a large vocabulary of, of codes? I don't, I don't think we consciously created a large vocabulary, but we just easily sort of talked in, in, with discretion, let me put it that way. And did you hang out other places too? Like did you and he go out to dinner from time to time or... Uh, no, not really. I mean, in, in the House of Representatives, when you're a young member, a new member, you have to work so hard and go out so many evenings to go to Chamber of Commerce dinners or members or to dinners of the National Association of this and that. You don't have time to do much. Private socializing. At least I didn't, and I don't think you did. And how often would you return to the district during a term? A lot. At least once a month, I did. And in those days, I guess flight was the flight. Was the way you got oh yeah, the only way. Back. Yeah, flight. Yeah. Um, now, in '68, then you joined the Nixon campaign. Yes. Yeah. Tell tell us about that. Well, I'd always been an admirer of Nixon, and we met in the. When was it? Must have been. We encountered each other at an airport in the autumn of 1966. And he said, we were both traveling and so we didn't have much time to talk, but he said, after the New Year's of 1967, why don't you come up to New York and let's talk about 68? So I said, fine. So I did and we clicked and and he... Uh, was going on a world around the world tour to call on leaders and polish his image and bring himself up to date on international affairs, which was his forte. And he asked me if I would like to go with him. I said, sure, chance of a lifetime, which I did in the spring of 67. Talk about that a little bit. What was that like? Well, it was strenuous, and I was a lot younger then than I am now. But uh, it was very interesting, very rich. We, uh, we accompanied him on most of the northern hemisphere. I did not accompany him into the southern hemisphere. He had other people that he wanted to get in on the act. So uh, I remember 
particularly meeting with Macmillan in London. Macmillan was out of power in the spring of 67. But uh, I remember meeting with him, such a smart, cunning, crafty politician. And he said, now, Dick, when you get to be president, he said, remember this. You Americans are not as good at this as we are in, in, in Britain. You have to be a good butcher, either to be prime minister or to be president. And uh, <laughs> Nixon was not a good butcher when he became president. I took the liberty of reminding him of that little Richard counter two or three times. And, uh, and what, would the, what would butchering consist of? Uh, firing somebody that was not serving you well and not hesitating to do so. On the tour, what role did you play? Well, I was the... I would give him brief... I would study up and give, prepare briefings and and I, before we would go on the tour, I got the visas, the state. And uh, I would, as, as he said, I was the baggage smasher, which I was, and just sort of the, the uh, factotum, the baggage smasher, the factotum, the uh, friend, the counselor, the junior guy. <laughs> was there a large group, or were there two of us? Two. Just the two of you? Yeah. You and Richard Nixon. Yeah. Wow. So, I, I, I need to pause here just for a second. Okay, uh, you were ta- you were ta- telling us during the break here about uh, Dole's memory. Well, uh, the thing is that after his war wounds, Dole completely lost the use of his right hand and most of the use of his left hand so that he couldn't take notes on a conversation or at a meeting or anywhere. Couldn't take notes to refresh his recollection about or to have a recollection written down of what, who had said what when. So he developed this fabulous compensate, compensatory memory skill. He had to work on it, but he developed it to a marvelous degree so that he could, from a meeting or from a conversation, he could remember everything that was said, by whom, and in what order, and what the nuances were, so that if anybody... And, and of course, that was very helpful to him in debate on the floor of the Senate. It's also helpful to him in his dealing with his colleagues and with staff people uh, who would <laughs> say, I wasn't at that meeting, and he'd be able to refresh their recollection by by remembering that they were... and what they had said and who else was there. And so the amazing skill and ability and a very, I think, a very big element in his success as a political leader in this country. Did he ever talk to you about that? No. I just observed it. Because it involves not only an incredible memory, yeah. but an incredible ability to concentrate. To concentrate. Say. And when he's talking to you, or when you're talking to him, you can see him looking at you with his whole self looking at you and paying attention. And you know he's getting it, <laughs> uh, which is an impressive thing in and of itself. But then that transforms itself into this beautiful memory of uh, what was going on. 
Do you recall other people had that same kind of... I never of saw anybody with that ability. That intensity? Uh, never. Remarkable. Did you play any role in his 1976 run for the vice presidency? 76? I do not recall. <laughs> If I were Bob Dole, I'd remember every detail, but, but I'm not. It's the wrong thing to say after you just <laughs> I don't remember that. 76. When oh, was I was, no, I couldn't have because I was in the Pentagon at the time. Uh, and I wouldn't have been involved in politics, even for Bob Dole. 76. And, and the same might be for the 1980. Uh, when he did a brief run for uh, the presidency. I don't remember that. I was not in the Pentagon, of course, in 1980, but I don't remember that run. So it was the 88 campaign where you became significantly involved. Yeah. And talk about that. Tell us what what that was like. (laughs) Curious. The main thing I remember about that is being invited by Reagan, who was interested in, in 87. Now, remember, in 88... Reagan was coming to the end of his presidency, and George Bush, the vice president, George H.W. Bush, was gearing up to, to run for the nomination. And so it seemed to Dole that that opened the door for him, and uh, seemed to Reagan that it opened the door for him. <laughs> so... Dole and I spoke briefly about it, and it was understood between us that if Dole decided to go for it in 88, that I would certainly be glad to help him. And then I was invited by Reagan to come out to Los Angeles and join him and his wife Nancy at a little lunch up in their ranch up in the mountains above Santa Barbara. Barbara. And I said to the intermediary who invited me on his behalf, I said, I'll be glad to do it but you've got to swear that you're explaining to him that I'm committed to Bob Dole. Oh, yes, yes, okay. So I arrive at the ranch for lunch, and uh, Reagan says, well, thank you for coming. We want to talk about the campaign. And I said, thank you, Governor. But I said, I'm sure you've been told that I'm committed to Bob Dole. No, he said, nobody told me that. So we had a very pleasant lunch anyway. And Nancy showed me around the ranch and went out to pet the horses. And it was a delightful lunch. <laughs> but that's one of the main things I remember about that campaign. And then, of course, the theory of both of those men, both Dole and, and Reagan, was that Bush would become embroiled in the Iran-Contra thing and would make him vulnerable. But it didn't. And he was able to escape the toils of the machinations of a wrong country, even though he'd been vice president at the time. And Reagan felt that that was his vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, it took a certain... Well, Reagan, of course, was also very ambitious and very convinced that he was the head of a serious movement, the movement conservatives. and that. Uh, but, that but part of the calculus was that, that H.W. Bush was vulnerable, 41, <laughs> it became 41, not to standing. Whoops. Can we just move this? Okay, thanks. Um, so, so then, uh, how, how did that uh, campaign play out then in 88 for Dole? Not well. Not well. Bush beat him. And 
difference. I recall it was kind of a, a not an easy campaign operation. No, it wasn't. Dole, <laughs> Dole operations are never easy. <laughs> so explain yourself. Well, he's the master of detail and and uh, needs to enmesh himself in what's going on and make sure that everything's going the way he wants it to. And uh, I couldn't, couldn't operate that way. And I finally went and told him, look, I said, this is not working. Uh, you can either uh, give up your tendency to interfere in the management of the campaign, which is okay with me, and or you can... Uh, continue to operate this way, but I can't. And I said, we'll still be friends no matter what. Oh, he said, uh, I can't, can't just completely give up operating and involving myself. I said, okay. So then he, that evening, I think, after that little conversation, was at a dinner party in Georgetown with Bill Brock, who had been a senator. And he and Elizabeth recruited Brock on the spot, who was the Secretary of Labor in the uh, in the cabinet. I'm, am I getting my campaign? It would have been in the Reagan. Reagan. In the well, Reagan. That's right. I guess I've got my dates embroiled in confusion here, <laughs> but it's all quite a long time ago. In any case, uh, I stepped aside and Brock came in. And uh, of course, Dole. Was that was that ninety six? Eighty eight. Huh? I think eighty eight. Eighty eight. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that that's where he. Let's see. He won in Iowa. Iowa, but lost badly in New, New Hampshire. Hampshire right. Right, right. But that was long after you. Well, no, maybe you were in charge then. Was no, that? I wasn't. So you actually... I was up in New Hampshire uh, manning the phones during the day with a friend of mine and of Dole's from New York named Bob Price. And we drove up there the night before and were on the phones making these calls that you make to likely voters saying, have you voted yet? Please be sure to vote today. (laughs) So um, this didn't cause any hard feelings between you and... No, it did not. How did how did he break the news to you that that you were no longer part of the campaign? Well, he asked me to. He he, t- he called me the next day and told me he and Elizabeth had recruited Brock and would I please meet with Brock and handle the transition, which <laughs> which I did. Wow. Yeah. Huh. So then, uh, in '96, were you involved in the campaign? The only way I was involved in the campaign in '96 was that Bush had. Re- I mean, uh, Dole recruited me to be the chairman of his screening committee for the selection of his vice president, which I was glad to do. And I said, who else was on the screening committee? And he said, didn't have anybody, so I recruited a couple of people that he liked. And so we worked hard and did research on various candidates, and and then I would go and report to him. And, and uh, I had a matrix about what was good and what was not so good about each potential candidate. Everybody knew who the candidates were. And so then Dole <laughs> selected Kemp, which had nothing to do with any of the things we had done. It had to do with the uh, with Dole's sense 
of what would enthuse the conservative base in the party at that time, which it did at the convention. But then it was a disastrous campaign. Was Kemp among those that you... No, he wasn't. That's really an interesting bit of history, isn't it? Because <laughs> he thought well of, of the group that you recruited, presumably, oh, yeah. oh, and your sure. sense oh, of yes. judgment and oh, whatnot. Yeah. But then yeah. when you proposed, it was overlooked. Yeah. <laughs> it was okay. I mean, I mean, it wasn't okay, really. He, sh- he should have... We had a long, serious talk about how to do this because I pointed out to him, and he agreed, that there had been a lot of mistakes made by some of our friends, <laughs> starting with Nixon in their selection of vice presidential candidates and starting and then going to Goldwater, selecting Bill Miller and so forth on down the line. And, uh, but, uh, so he said, we're not gonna make any of those mistakes. (laughs) Wow. Um, Over the years, you've continued to maintain a friendship with with Dole, sure. uh, and give me a sense of, of how that goes. Do, do you call each other regularly or see we each do. other? We do, yeah. I, of course, am in California and, and live out there, but whenever I'm coming here, I call up his office and say, I'm going to be in Washington such and such, and, and so see if you can find a time for me on his schedule, and they always do. And then uh, the other day, about a month ago, he was in San Diego, as the co-chairman of this presidential commission on the treatment of our war wounded, along with Donna Shalala, presidential commission. And he sent, called a guy, he had a, one of his staff guys call me up and and so I went around and we had a coffee for about an hour. But yeah, we keep in touch with each other. And just that particular coffee for an hour, what did you chat about? Everything. I can't. Uh, Everything we, political or do you? I talked about a lot of personal stuff too. Now, you have been involved uh, in his personal life, in particular his marriage and so forth. So how did that come about? You mean? Being his best man. And, yeah. You know. Well, I'm not sure why he selected me to be his best man. I guess, you know, you couldn't think of anybody else. <laughs> Were you surprised? Uh, no, not really. I was pleased and honored, but I wasn't terribly surprised. And that was nice. So then when I got married in 2002 here recently, I asked him if he would be my best man as a co-best man with my brother, and he quickly agreed. So he was my best man to my second marriage as I was to him in his second marriage. Nice symmetry there. Did you know Phyllis? Yes, well, sure. Anything, any perspective you can add to that uh, part of Dole's life? The only thing I can say about that is that it's hard on a, on a lady to suddenly be transported from being the wife of a Kansas lawyer into being the wife of a member of Congress. I mean, I, I did it myself. You, 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 you can't give your lady friend, your wife, the kind of attention and support that she's accustomed to and that she's entitled to and that she needs when you've got these demands, <laughs> if I may say so, of, you know, helping to run the world. <laughs> and you get swept up in that, and so it's tough. I don't, I really, he never confided in me about his and Phyllis's 
relationship, but I just know it because I myself went through a lot of that. And all of us did. I mean, you could see. You were telling she was us. a lovely lady, and I think he thinks so too. Still. And uh, tell me your reaction on meeting Elizabeth for the first time. Oh, I thought that was a great idea. I mean, I really thought she was good looking and very able. And and uh, shall I tell you about my toast sure. to her at the uh, luncheon the day before the wedding? at the F Street Club, and uh, so I was asked as the best man to give the toast to the bride, the bride-to-be. So I s- said to the audience, I said, all of, uh, almost all of you know that Bob Dole and I are good friends. And uh, from time to time in his career, he's asked me for advice. When he was a member of the House thinking about running for the Senate, he asked me if I thought he should run for the Senate, and I said, no, don't do that. He said, you've got a safe seat here in the House. You run for the Senate. It's a big state. People don't know you. If they do in your district, you lose, and it'll be the end of your political career. Well, I was wrong. And so I said then he, in the Senate, uh, was thinking about being chairman of the Republican National Committee, and he asked me what I thought of that. And I said, oh, Bob, don't do that. He said, here you are in the Senate. You're a freshman senator. You're just getting started. you got a good start on being a senator. And you go out and get to be the chairman of the National Committee and you have all kinds of enemies created that you don't need and that don't care anything about you and be a big mistake and a drain on your time. And Bill Miller was the chairman of the National Committee when he was in the House and it was a disaster, so don't do it. Well, I was wrong. Then I said he introduced me to Elizabeth one day, one Sunday afternoon, and told me he was thinking about being serious with her and what did I think of that? And I said, well, I said, Elizabeth... It's very impressive. I said, she's a southern aristocrat. You're not. I said, she's a graduate of Harvard Law School. You're not. You just went to Washburn or somewhere. I said, she's a Phi Beta Kappa from Duke. I said, who are you? I said, you, you shouldn't aspire to Elizabeth because she's so much better than you. Well, I was right. <laughs> and Elizabeth loved it, and the audience did, and Bob loved it too. So that was a lot of fun. Right. Now, you understand that those episodes that I described are apocryphal. He didn't really ask me for advice on whether to run for the Senate. If he had, I told him yes. He didn't really ask me about being the chairman. I, I would have said yes. And when he did ask me about Elizabeth, I said, of course, go for it. But anyway, it was a good good little episode. <laughs> What about his reign as uh, head of the Republican National Committee? What was that like? Was that a good... I I can't remember exactly when that was, but I didn't pay too much attention to it. 69 Uh, through 71, I think. No, 71 through 73. Yeah, that's right. Well, that was during the Watergate uh, and the Nixon resignation. And you probably recall he was pretty hard on Nixon. He said those guys in the White House, including Nixon... Speak no evil, hear no evil. And evil. Just evil. <laughs> right, right. Did, um, did you have any contact with Richard Nixon or much contact after uh, you left the White House? Oh, a lot after he left the White House. For years and years I would travel with him and I helped him write one of his books. And yes, I had a lot of contact with Nixon after he left the White House. I always said that when Nixon went into the White House, he was perfectly sane and very smart. 
And all during the White House years, he went downhill on both counts. And it wasn't ended up being kind of crazy. But after he got out of the White House and caught his breath, he became very sane and very smart again. So, <laughs> uh, no, I was curious about after you left the White House, did you have any contact with him? Oh, yeah. Well, he was the president and I was ambassador to NATO. And so... But, I mean, like in the run up to the Watergate uh, and the impeachment and so No, by forth. that time I was at Lazard in New York. I wasn't in touch with him So he wasn't, he wasn't no. calling you and asking no. for advice or no. anything, anything of that sort. Uh, one person we've interviewed during, in the run-up to the 88 campaign was Dave Owen. And I was wondering if you worked with him and what that what kind of a working relationship you had with him we was. Didn't, I didn't work with him at all. You did not? No. Okay. All right. Um, could you characterize Dole's um, role in international affairs? Because most people haven't talked really about that, and you have such a distinguished international perspective. Yeah, well, I think that Dole, in the first place, was very active on behalf of the uh, grain exporters of Kansas in international affairs, very supportive of the Eisenhower programs to support the sale of wheat, corn, and other agricultural products of all kinds. I mean, cotton, you name it, uh, soybeans, everything. And then Dole became very active in the uh, Helsinki process, the so-called Helsinki process, where human rights were, were brought to the top of the agenda in East-West relations. And, and as a result of the Helsinki conference, there were these baskets of things that the international community pledged itself to monitor, and, to, and Dole was very active in that process. And it was, a, it was a surprise to a lot of people that that took on such momentum and such weight of its own. The Helsinki Basket, the Helsinki Accords, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it, it brought human rights in Eastern Europe to the top of the world's agenda, not necessarily on behalf of democracy, but on behalf of dignity for everybody, no matter what your political system was something which I think is still legitimate today. Dignity, not so much democracy. I mean, there are a lot of things about democracy that are wonderful, but there are a lot of things about democracy that don't go down well in other cultures, but dignity always does. And that was Dole's big thrust, thesis. Anything else on the international scene that you... I think those were the main points. I know Senator Nichols, for example, told me about going on several Codells with uh, mm-hmm. with him and how impressive he, he was with uh, uh, Havel in, uh, yeah. in, in uh, Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. Thank you, and uh, other places and so forth. So yeah. he 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 so often thought of as as being pretty much centered in the Senate yeah. and in domestic policy and whatnot. But he did have definitely a, oh, yeah. an international absolutely. Um, what about Dole as a leader uh, of the Republican Party in the Senate? Well, how would you characterize that leadership? Oh, I think he was a breath of fresh air, and was he was a skillful leader. He knew his he knew the substance of what he was talking about. He knew the detailed 
needs and and weaknesses and strengths of each senator. And, uh, oh, I thought he was superb. Everybody did, I think. Do you think he had a kind of double standard in the sense that he worked very well with colleagues, but was was kind of uh, harsh as uh, with his staff? Very, <laughs> very demanding of his staff, and uh, you have to be demanding of your staff sometimes. And maybe he didn't have the right style or to suit a lot of people, but. He was harsh and demanding with his staff, yeah. When he first came to Congress, uh, I mentioned the Genghis Khan uh, quote, uh, and others said that he seemed very harsh and and so forth. Was that, were you picking up on that? I did not. I heard that, but I did not see it. And then the thesis goes that he moderated Mm -hmm. a good deal in some of his viewpoints and I guess some of his means of expression and whatnot. Maybe. And then became more partisan again for 96 because of political necessity. Yeah. Maybe so. So you said yes to all of those or or maybe. Uh, What does that say about being a politician? Well, if you're a successful politician over a period of decades, you notice how things change. And instead of digging in your heels and just remaining the same, you change with the times. To some extent, you retain your principles, which he always did, but you change your, you flex your approach, your tactics. They all do, if they survive. How do you think he'll be remembered as time goes on, say, from a perspective of 20 or 30 years from now? I think he'll be remembered as the most dynamic Senate leader uh, of the Republicans, the dynamic Senate leader of the late 20th century. And I know this is a big, unfair question, but how would you characterize the politics of the late 20th century? Confused. Well, starting with with the, I referred to this earlier, starting with the huge change in the federal government's role in connection with civil rights ever since the Civil War you got to remember that when the Civil War ended, there was a deal between the South and the federal government, which was that we, will, we, the South, will continue to exercise white supremacy. And the North said, okay, if you can enforce it, we won't interfere. And and that was still reflected in my encounter with Bobby Kennedy over my constituent whose daughter went down to Louisiana. And then the Kennedy brothers were persuaded that that wouldn't work, and they changed it and sent the Justice Department and the FBI down there throughout the South in order to enforce voting and enforce enrollment in the universities. So it was, and that created, and then you had Vietnam And then you had inflation at 18 or 20% for several years. 
So it was very tumultuous, period. Those are three examples of how tumultuous it was. <laughs> Do you oh, see? Oh, and then you had the assassination of Kennedy. You had the Cuban Missile Crisis. I could go on and on, but uh, those are some examples of uh, what we've all been through, all of us in this room, and probably most of the people reading your book. Do you see a time in the future when everything is going to all these all these all this confusion is going to be resolved? Oh, I can't answer that. That's not fair. <laughs> It's possible. It's possible. That's one scenario. I'm a great believer in trying to figure out scenarios when I try to imagine the future. And that's one scenario, but it's not the only one by any means. Well, I was wondering if you thought that maybe we'd become even more confused in the 21st century. So far, yes. Mainly because of the loss of power and the legitimacy of the nation-state in the 21st century. The world is no longer have its. The world no longer has its shots called by the great political powers: United States, Russia, China, India, Japan, Brazil. Nowadays, the shots are being called by science and technology, and by enormous amounts of money circulating throughout the world. Enormous amounts of money, five trillion dollars at any one time circulating at high speed. And those are the things that politicians and nation states don't understand. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's still confusing, but it might get straightened out, I don't know. I anticipated you're saying that, that one of the forces is forces of terrorism and, and uh, you know, all of this mayhem that the world is countering now. But it's interesting that you, you put greater importance on sort of economic imbalances. Well, no, science and technology is not economic. No. And money, of course, is. And, of course, terrorism is religion. I should have mentioned religion. Religion is a powerful force. It has nothing to do with nation states anymore. And uh, I'm a religious person. I go to church, I believe, and, uh, but I think that, <laughs> that religion in today's world is adding to the turbulence. How does science and technology play out? Oh, two things. First of all, uh, life sciences, gene therapy, uh, DNA, mainly genes, manipulating whether we're tall or short, smart or dumb, blue-eyed or brown-eyed, all kinds of human characteristics. Uh, some people call it our post-human future because we're so able with genes to manipulate uh, human beings and cure things. That's one. And the other thing is computers. The use of computers enables us to have access to insights from the manipulation of information that were never dreamed of before. So watch out. 
So as you're, as you're describing this, I think of Russell, Kansas in the late 20s yeah. and the 30s right. and whatnot. Right. Big changes. Different world. Unbelievable. Good. I'm going to stop there. Okay. Thank you very much.